Give the gift of liberty this holiday season by becoming a Cato sponsor on behalf of a friend or loved one. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And if you support our work with $1,000 or more, I'll gladly give you or your designee a shout-out on the Cato Daily Podcast. Help us advance the values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace by becoming a Cato podcast sponsor. The website, again, is cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, December 10th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The FDA's pursuit of safety puts patients willing to take on more risk at a potentially fatal disadvantage. Mark Flatten is the national investigative reporter at the Goldwater Institute. We spoke in November about what he calls the deadly consequences of FDA's overcaution. You argue that the regulatory process at the FDA for new drugs is broken. Um, and it, it's sort of just this patchwork of uh, pieces of regulation that have been altered and tweaked over time. What is the single biggest problem with FDA's regulatory process for approving new drugs? Well, the single biggest problem at the FDA is really risk aversion. Uh, FDA regulators know that if they uh, – their biggest fear is that they'll approve a drug that's later going to come out to have some unseen side effect. And so in their quest for sort of absolute statistical certainty, uh, they've added more testing requirements, more tests, more time, more delays, uh, and frankly, more cost. Uh, again, in, in the quest for this absolute statistical certainty because they know if, you know, two or three years down the road that there, a problem arises with this drug after it's approved – they're going to get hauled in front of Congress and and uh, be forced to explain themselves. They're going to be pilloried in the media. So there's a lot of downside uh, for saying yes. Uh, but for saying no, people don't really see the consequences of that. If if you're dying of cancer, uh, for instance, and there's a, a, a new miracle cure that could save your life, but it's still in uh, FDA testing, and you die because you don't have access to that medication, Nobody ever hears about that for the most part, and that's not a hypothetical. I, I recall uh, interviewing Amy Auden, who's, uh, whose husband died of multiple melanoma, I believe, uh, several years ago while the, uh, the drug that ultimately became Keytruda was uh, still undergoing FDA review. And the part of that interview that really struck me was she, she lived in Denver, and uh, one of the clinical trials uh, on the product was being uh, conducted uh, somewhere in Denver. And she described watching her husband die as the treatment that could have saved his life was literally on the other side of a glass door. Uh, and that's the problem is we don't, we don't really take into account um, the people that could have been saved but died instead because the drug that could cure them or the treatment that could cure them is tied up in this regulatory bureaucracy, not – not, not because it's unsafe and not because it's ineffective, but just purely because the FDA has continued to add layer upon layer upon layer of bureaucracy to the drug approval process, again, purely because of risk aversion. Now, one of the things that, that you note uh, in your paper for the Goldwater Institute is that uh, in, in, in service to this risk aversion, it becomes a lot easier for the FDA to approve incremental changes to drugs rather than a new drug. How does that change 
uh, the incentives for uh, drug makers? Uh, actually, that's one of the interesting things if you look at the FDA process is it's kind of created its own dynamic. So basically, uh, you know, the, the general overall figures is it takes about one and a half billion dollars in out-of-pocket expenses to get a drug through clinical trials and uh, and get it approved by the FDA. It generally takes some, somewhere along the lines of 12 to 15 years. So if you're a drug uh, a drug company, and bear in mind, most of the, the, the really innovative products are being developed by these small companies that might have one or two products. And so if you're developing a product, are you going to, given that, that risk of the time and the expense and the knowledge that if this drug is not ultimately approved by the FDA, it's not only going to kill the drug, if you're one of these small innovators, it's probably going to kill your company. Uh, so, you know, are you uh, are you going to take the risk of trying to really develop the big new blockbuster drug because you know if that if if you do come up with that, that that's going to bring even more scrutiny by the FDA. That's going to bring heightened scrutiny because you're trying something completely new and different. So it's much safer to make small incremental changes to. Uh, not necessarily to existing products, but not try to move the ball too far, because when you do that, you're taking you're taking a lot of the risk out of the equation. Uh, the consequence of that is is the current system really does kind of stifle innovation. Uh, the time and the expense and this all or nothing a, um, uh, approval process really discourages companies from doing the kind of research and developing the kind of products. That are going to make you know big leaps and bounds in the treatment of diseases. It's far easier to you know make a little bit of a, a, an improvement to an existing product than it is to develop a whole new concept of treating diseases. Now I know you say that, and I, I'm reminded of commercials for uh, where they have a drug that has has been on the market for a while, and then they add XL to the end of it and uh, change the formulation uh, a little bit. Uh, to make it better somehow. Um, but another thing that jumped out at me uh, in what you just said is that um, if you want the new big blockbuster drug and if you're expected to have to spend uh, more than a billion dollars uh, to get it through all of the relevant uh, FDA trials, that really punishes makers of drugs that would have a fairly limited, even if dramatic, uh, benefit to people who, you know, it, it's not a broad-based drug. It's a drug to help a condition that doesn't affect that many people. Well, absolutely. And, and frankly, when we talk, you know, most of the discussion about reform, uh, we tend to focus on uh, things like, uh, you know, cancer cure or something like that um, and, and how the bureaucracy keeps that product off the market for, for years purely for regulatory, uh, to satisfy regulatory demands. But an equally, uh, you know, some would argue an even bigger problem is the time and the expense of the FDA regulatory process actually discourages uh, new treatments for uh, uh, chronic conditions, you know, heart, uh, heart uh, disease or diabetes, uh, things like that. Uh, it also, uh, a lot of these products that might uh, improve, uh, you know, someone, let's say you're a diabetic. And if you've, if you've got a new product that will reduce the glucose levels in the blood. Now, it used to be in the, uh, in the 70s and, and, and probably into the early 80s that if you had that product and you took it to the FDA and you said, look, you know, it's purely completely safe and we can show it reduces the glucose levels in the blood, 
It used to be that would be enough because you're showing that the product is safe and it's effective. It does what you say it's going to do. But now the, what the FDA is requiring, and, and this has been an evolutionary process, is, is, is well, okay, prove to us that that's going to improve long-term outcomes. Prove to us that you're not just lowering glucose levels in a diabetic, uh, but you're somehow going to make that person live longer. And so when you take things like that and couple it with the time and uh, certainly the expense, uh, it really discourages the development of, of lower-cost drugs that might ultimately help a, a lot more people than sort of the big blockbusters because if I'm developing a new product, I'm going to have to recoup that billion and a half dollars somehow. And I'm probably going to want to uh, put my research and my money into a product that's going to give me huge returns because that will allow me to recoup these costs. Uh, I'm probably not going to spend that kind of time and money to develop a a uh, product that could, you know, improve the lives of, of thousands, if not millions of people if there's not a profit margin in it. So a lot of drugs are ultimately abandoned, not for medical reasons, but purely for financial reasons. Obviously, the right choice here is to uh, not have a large federal bureaucracy in, charging, in charge of deciding what drugs people can use and what, uh, what drugs they, they cannot use. But uh, how do we get from here to there? Well, there's a number of reform options that are being talked about. Uh, we cover a few of them in, in, uh, in our new uh, report. We don't uh, attempt to cover them all. But it, it really – you got to get past this mindset of, of absolute statistical certainty. As I'm fond of saying, you know, perfectionists will never rule the world because they can never make a decision. Uh, and that's the kind of paralysis we see at the FDA. And from the, the folks I interviewed for this story, it didn't used to be that way. Uh, and – um, uh, th th this added layers of bureaucracy, these added testing requirements, these this moving the goalpost, it really hasn't made us any safer. Uh, if you look at the percentage of drugs uh, that are that are later that are approved by the FDA and later withdrawn, it's actually held remarkably steady for decades. Uh, and and even today, even under this system, about a third of uh, all new drugs approved by the FDA later have some safety issue that comes up after it's approved and in, in, in the general population. Uh, and the reason for that is because we've got this you know billion billion and a half dollar ten to fifteen year time frame. Uh, when these drug companies are conducting clinical trials, they literally design them to target a very specific. A uh, remarkably similar group of, of test patients because uh, everything's riding on that. So they find a statistical uh, group of patients uh, who are most likely to succeed with this drug and not have any problems with it. The problem with that is after the drug has gone through clinical trials and been approved by the FDA, you have a great deal of data on that narrow sliver of the population, but you don't really uh, know how, that, how safe or effective that drug is going to be in the population as a whole. So one of the things that the reformers are talking about now, uh, and I include in that some people in Congress and even to a limited degree the FDA, is the better use of data. Um, for instance, one of the reform proposals is something they call conditional approval where uh, after a drug has been shown to be safe and there's strong indications of effectiveness, you would allow them to start marketing that drug even though it hasn't received uh, final FDA approval. And the caveat of that system is uh, patients who were treated with that product would be intensely monitored and all of their data would be fed into this massive database. And the result of something like that is rather than a clinical trial where you study this narrow sliver of the population for 10 years, you would immediately 
across a broad spectrum of patients uh, have incredible amounts of data on the safety of this drug, the effectiveness of this drug. And uh, going forward, the discussion is how can we use this data to better shape these decisions? Can we start moving some of these uh, you know, long and expensive clinical trials Instead of doing those, can we start, you know, doing some of this intense monitoring after the the product is being dispensed on a wider group of people? Uh, this also has economic benefits because the the small drug companies, the ones that are really the innovators in this uh, industry, uh, could start recouping some of their um, regulatory costs uh, sooner, five to seven years sooner, by some estimates. And they would also uh, be generating huge amounts of data across a broad spectrum of patients. So that's that's kind of the big picture reform. And there's there's a little bit of uh, Congress um, has embraced components of that, particularly the data monitoring, uh, and even the FDA uh, Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, at least in words, not necessarily in actions, uh, except those prompted by congressional uh, pressure. Uh, is talking about how can we use this data better to make this process more efficient and streamlined. Interesting in, in what you uh, noted, if you combine the process that the FDA subjects drugs to with the typical response from drug makers to, to get a, a great amount of data about a very tiny sliver of a sort of a homogenous group of people uh, with respect to a drug's effects, um, you know, it's it's interesting that we might actually know less about how a drug works because of the uh, rigors that the FDA imposes on drug makers. Well, exactly. And, and part of the problem with the regulatory system is it creates its own dynamic. And that, that certainly is one of them. If you look at what happened with Vioxx, um, it was approved by the FDA and, and, and it was later – uh, established that it uh, could trigger heart attacks uh, in a broader spectrum of patients. And part of the problem with a, with a system like that is uh, you, the, because of the time and expense, the drug companies literally design their trials. It's been described as trying to hit a bullet with a bullet. You find a test patient and you can screen test patients for everything down to the genetic level. You find the, the little group of patients that are most likely to respond because you've got a lot of money riding on this product. So if you've got to go through that regulatory process, you're going to do everything you can to make sure you succeed. Uh, and ultimately, once the drug hits the market, you, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not dealing with that narrow sliver of the population anymore. Um, you're dealing with, with people with different genetic you – know, and we all know that different drugs respond differently to different people. Uh, so the more we can start understanding how these products work in the real world uh, as opposed to this laboratory setting, the closer we're going to get to products that really are innovative, safe, and effective. Um, just real quickly, there are also much simpler reforms that are out there. Um, probably the simplest is, is one that the Goldwater Institute is actually advocating in the States, which is uh, called free speech in medicine. Uh, basically, the courts have, have said that uh, pharmaceutical companies do have First Amendment protected rights uh, to communicate about their products. Um, but the FDA has taken the position that uh, if you make – if you even have a conversation, if you initiate a conversation about an off-label use of a product and, and what an off-label use is, is, is a drug is approved generally for one specific condition at one specific dosing level. Um, but once it hits the market, people find that it, it's effective in treating other conditions. So if there's a treatment for lung cancer, it may also be 
uh, effective for treating ovarian cancer. And this is the kind of thing you find out when the product reaches the real world. Drug manufacturers cannot communicate that information uh, to doctors. Even though the courts say that that is First Amendment protected speech, the FDA takes the position that if you do that, if you communicate uh, about off-label uses, uh, even with doctors, that that is what they call misbranding. And there have been a number of drug companies and drug uh, company CEOs who've been charged with felony criminal offenses uh, for legal communications about the legal use of a legally sold product. Uh, and, the F and what free speech in medicine would, would say is, um, look, uh, pharmaceutical companies have a right uh, to communicate truthful and non-misleading information about their products, uh, whether it's on-label or off-label. That's, that's as simple as it gets because the courts basically uh, have taken that position. It's just the FDA and the Department of Justice has refused to acknowledge it. Uh, another simple approach is what they call reciprocity. So we've got uh, uh, similar, similarly uh, rigorous uh, drug approval processes in the European Union, uh, in Canada, places like Australia and Israel. Uh, there have been uh, uh, bills in Congress, uh, Senators Cruz, Lee, and Johnson uh, had a bill this term that didn't get a hearing, that would basically say, okay, look, if the European Union or Canada approves a new medication, the FDA will have 30 days to either approve it for, for use here or come up with a good reason why it can't be approved here. Uh, and what that would do is it would, it would, uh, it would end this silliness where a product that is in general use and saving lives in Canada is not available in the United States. Um, we saw the consequences of that uh, a few years ago when there was an outbreak of meningitis at uh, Princeton University and later uh, Uni University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, there was no approved treatment for uh, this particular strain of meningitis in the U.S. Uh, the FDA had not approved any. There were uh, vaccines available in Canada and throughout the European Union. Um, and so the treatments that uh, that uh, would have prevented uh, the contagion uh, in Canada could not be used in the United States. Uh, if we had some kind of reciprocity approval, uh, a, a safe and effective product approved in Canada or the European Union would be available here. Mark Flatten is the national investigative reporter at the Goldwater Institute. Here we are on the cusp of 2019, and I'd like to ask you to consider supporting the Cato podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by joining our podcast sponsor program. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and learn more of the benefits of sponsorship. That's cato.org slash podcast sponsor.